This is Focal Point for Thursday, the 24th of July, 2008. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? Good, good. We've had a break of a few weeks, about three weeks since our last episode. And just to remind everyone, last time we were talking about there's a market for everything. And we decided to split that into two episodes, and this is the second one of those. Uh, So last time we were talking about how to find the price of something on the Internet if you have an idea of what you'd like to sell. And today we're going to be talking about if you don't really know what – well, if you don't have any products and you're looking for a market, how you can find profitable markets. But first, a quick follow-up from – our last episode, Chris, you were talking about Ian Usher, who was a Perth guy who auctioned his life on eBay. And he, 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 his top bid was around about $400,000. But a little bit of uh, unfortunate news for him was that the, the top bidders defaulted. So he actually wasn't able to sell his house on eBay. Yeah, it was it was more than his house, wasn't it, Gihan? It was his house and it was all of his possessions. He wanted to, in one hit sell off everything he'd set up a website called a life for sale.com and it was his house his furnishings his vehicles an introduction to his friends and a chance at his job someone bid four hundred thousand australian dollars almost uh for that lot um but it turned out that not only the top bidder but the the top six bidders all defaulted on um on following up by paying for uh, the items that they'd bid for, which was a real shame for Ian. I feel very uh, sorry for him. Yes, that's right. And, and um, the news report that I read said that eBay has no way of enforcing that for real estate auctions. And I guess they have for smaller items, maybe they have a way of enforcing it. But for real estate, maybe there are different laws. Perhaps that is the case, Kiehan. And I guess I, I, I don't know if the, what the bidders' stories are, but uh, it seems like they might have just been time wasters and all they were really risking was a negative um, entry on their feedback lists um, and that was it. Uh, if they didn't stump up the cash when the auction completed then there was nothing there was no penalty in it for them but uh, Ian was the one who ended up um, paying for that essentially. Yeah, you're quite right. Like He, t- he had much more on the line and uh, I read that he then went to real estate agent to sell his house and he had it out on sale last weekend. I didn't, I haven't seen any follow-ups on that. But he did say that if anybody else was willing to have the whole package deal and was willing to pay for it at that same sort of price that he got on eBay, he'd be quite happy to throw that in. And he was quoted as saying they'd be really getting about $450,000 worth of goods for, for quite a bargain for, for, for 90% of that price. Yeah, that's right. It was, in our estimation, it was uh, a bit of a bargain for $100,000 for a home that was worth that, plus uh, vehicles and furnishings and all the rest that went with it. Not to mention the introduction to his best friend. Yes, but maybe that was the problem. (laughs) So let's move on from that, which is unfortunate, but... uh it just goes to show that sometimes the, the information that you find on the internet isn't necessarily reliable, and we'll have the same theme again today, I think, in the episode that we talk about today, Chris. Okay. So I I thought I'd introduce this by telling you a success story and a failure story. So there's good news and bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? 
let's start with the good news, Gihan. Ah, the good news. Okay. You never really know what people will buy on the internet. So if you have some products, we talked about this in the last episode, you can try to find out what, the, what price they'll pay. But if you don't and you're looking to find out what's popular so that you can build that sort of product, how can you... How can you determine that? And one of my clients, Max Hitchens, for, uh, who calls himself the Hospitality Doctor, and you can find his website at, at hospitalitydoctor.com, he had a very clever idea uh, in determining what the market was interested in. Max has been one of these people who's always looked at uh, market first. So he's always looking at the customer's point of view, your point of view, rather than his own self-interest. And so what he did was he had a number of books. He has a number of books available for sale on his website. And what he did was every time somebody signed up to his newsletter, he, at the end of it, after they signed up, they went to a page where it said, thank you for signing up. You've just gone into the draw for our monthly prize. And a monthly prize, everyone who signs up goes into a draw and they win one of these five prizes. And in that, he listed his five books. And um, he said, look, if you, if you do happen to win, which one would you like to win? And he found that there's, that one book kept consistently being asked for more than the others. And it was called something like 365 Great Marketing Ideas for, for the Hospitality Industry. Um, and we found that was the one that was most popular. So he rang me up one day and he said, look, this seems to be really popular. Maybe it's because it's the first one. So we switched it around. So we moved it around and we discovered it was actually still as popular. So it wasn't just the fact that it was at the top. It was the one that most people were interested in. When he ran out of um, all of his books, the one that he focused on was, of course, that one, because that was the most popular. And the first day that he offered it for sale, and he offered it for sale as an e-book, he made $24,000 worth of sales just from that e-book, simply because he'd done the market research up front to find out that's what people were actually interested in. Wow, that was a clever bit of marketing research, wasn't it? And uh, an incredible success story as well. It really was, and it's just, I think it's one of those things, Chris, that I've discovered working with experts over the last 11 or 12 years, that I find that speakers, trainers, consultants, coaches, experts in their field in general, tend to underestimate what they know and overestimate what they think they know about the market. In other words, they, under, they underestimate their product knowledge and they overestimate their market knowledge. I find that people... Um, I often say to me that they're surprised that there's stuff that I know that I just take for granted. But they say, look, look, there's lots of other people out there who don't know it. And for you, it's, it's old, it's boring, it's simple. But for other people, it's really new. Um, so I find that people do tend to underestimate what they actually know and what could be valuable to other people. But on the other hand, they tend to overestimate what... They, th- they think that they know what the market knows. And in many, time, in many cases, it's just not the case. Right. Okay, well, bring us back down to earth with a failure story, Gihan. Yes, well, this one actually is a story about me. Right. Um, so a few years ago, Chris, uh, if you remember, I think it was 2004, Australia brought in an anti-spam law, and it covered email and I think fax broadcasts, certainly SMSs, and it was big news. It was big news in the in the media. It was coming in on a certain date in April 2004. People were worried about... What does this mean for them being able to send out email newsletters? What does it mean for them being able to correspond with their clients? What does it mean in terms of getting permission? And I thought, okay, well, there's a lot of interest in this, so I'm going to write an ebook. 
And so I went and read the legislation, and I wrote an e-book, um, Anti-Spam in the Internet and What You Have to Know About It. And I offered that for sale. And I offered that for sale on my website and initially offered it to my to my newsletter database and then tried to get a little bit of search engine positioning so it came up near the top when people were searching for those sort of keywords. And eventually I bought some Google advertising for those particular keywords. And initially it didn't sell very well at all. And actually, to be honest, it never sold very well. Um, but later on, the, the last thing I did when I bought that Google advertising what I, was I discovered hardly anybody was searching for those words. Hardly anybody was searching on the Internet for information about the anti-spam legislation. So I don't know why. Maybe they didn't care or maybe they went. They just got legal advice from their lawyers or their, their industry association had a speaker at some function who told them about what the anti-spam legislation meant for them. But it really ended up being that almost nobody bought my ebook, And uh, I was quite surprised by that because despite all the media publicity and all the, um, all the discussion that was happening about it, there were very few people searching on the Internet for that particular product. Right. So you'd overestimated uh, your knowledge of the market. You hadn't done any market research. You just imagined that there was a market for a book about Australia's anti-spam legislation. Yeah, that's right. And, and all the signs seemed to be there that there was, it was topical. It had urgency around it because by a certain date everyone had to comply. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of talk about it. And it was something to do with the internet. So it seemed obvious to me or logical to me that people would be looking on the internet to find out about how they could handle email on the internet. And I was just, I was totally wrong. And I, I was so st- uh, astonished when I took out the Google advertising and it, I discovered that the advertising wasn't working, not because my ads were bad, but because nobody was actually searching for those words for the ads to even appear. Right. So that perhaps leads us into uh, how you can find out what, uh, whether there is a market for particular ideas that you might have. That's right, and that certainly, if I was doing the same same sort of thing again, where I was creating a product for strangers, I would do it quite differently. And I guess we'll we'll split this, Chris, into two areas. Uh, Let's call them active research and passive research. So active research methods, you you actually do your market research by asking people directly about your products or your potential products. Uh, And one of the things I do differently is, as Max did before he wrote the e-book, he did some he did some surveying he he did a very clever survey so he didn't ask them directly but he was asking them what are you interested in and then he created a product based on that demand and i would certainly do that the next time i would actually take out some google advertising first because it's an easy and cheap way relatively cheap way to find out what the market's like before you actually create a product and we talk, we'll have a couple of those stories later chris because i know you and i have both done that successfully with other products that we've created on the internet and the passive research is where we actually just go go on the internet and find out what's popular, what's topical, what are people buying already. Okay. So what what should we start with? Let's start with the active one, I guess. Let's yes. Yeah, and I, look, I think that um, we, we mentioned one already. One is to if you if you're thinking of creating a product um, on any topic, one of the simplest ways to start is to do. Um, is to do Google advertising. So Google has a system called Google AdWords where you pay for advertising. And this is how Google makes its money, in fact. Most of its money comes through AdWords. Uh, You pay every time somebody clicks on your ad. Now, the the thing about this is most people use that as a way of getting people to their website, and, and you would. So after you create a product, you'd certainly 
take out Google advertising to bring people to you to that page that advertises a product. But the clever thing is that you can even do it beforehand. And, and we've done that, Chris. Uh, we've, we've thought about a product and then taken out ads just to see if there's a demand for it. So I remember when I first did this, not the anti-spam one, that, that's the first time I did it. But since then, uh, I remember sitting down with my brother-in-law, Neil, and we brainstormed ideas for e-books that we thought people would be interested in. And we had about 50 different ideas. And um, we did a little bit of the passive research that we talk about and narrowed it down to about 10 or 15 and then took out ads for each one of them. And the thing about the ads is that the ads don't have to lead to your website because the website isn't created yet. The product isn't there. It can even lead to a competitor's website if you want to, somebody else selling the same product. It doesn't matter because you don't care about people buying at this stage. You just want to know how many people are searching and will then click on the ads. And by doing that, we narrowed it down to I ended up with three products that I was willing to, to pursue to actually create. So I actually ended up creating three ebooks, and now I've narrowed it down to just the one. But that's one of the simplest ways to get started with active research is to take out Google advertising. And if, certainly if you're marketing to strangers, that's the way I'd recommend you do it. Right, yes. And did you want to mention that we also – one of the techniques – as part of the Google survey, is to uh, set up a landing page. So as you mentioned, you could send it to uh, a competitor's uh, site just to measure traffic, but you can also do some more sophisticated things like set up a questionnaire. Yes, actually, why don't you talk about that? Because that's, I guess, the next level of sophistication. Instead of just taking out the ad and leading nowhere or leading to somewhere else, it can lead to what you call a landing page. That's right. So when you click on one of those ads on uh, Google, then you end up somewhere according to where you've, how you've configured your advert. Um, and if you set up a, a landing page that's got some kind of question on it, questionnaire on it, then you can find out more detailed information about the particular product that you're interested in creating. So the thing that uh, we've both done in this, this instance is to ask people what their most burning question is about the topic or, or product that we're interested in creating. And so from that, we get a series of... Um, questions about a particular topic and that gives you the framework for going away and creating the product itself. That's right and it's, in fact that's exactly the same technique that I use whenever I uh, market other things Chris so if I'm, if I'm giving a presentation I will send out an email to my newsletter database so I don't even pay any money for this because I've already got them uh, as part of my newsletter mailing list. I send out a, a, a survey to them saying what's your biggest question about this topic? And it's a topic that I'm going to give a presentation on. And that gives me useful useful information before the presentation to know what people are interested in. So I run monthly teleseminars on different topics, and I do that every month. And I know you've, you've responded often, Chris, and other people have responded. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that sometimes I find that the questions that people ask me are the questions that I thought they'd ask me. But at other times, and this actually happens more often than not, they just ask me questions that I'd never even thought of or questions that I wouldn't have thought were important to them. And so it's, again, the thing about me, um, I don't want to overestimate my knowledge of the market. I'd rather be sure by asking them what they're interested in. That's one of the benefits, Kihan, of having something like a membership database, whether it's um, an easing um uh, list of subscribers or a membership website is that you've got uh, a group of interested people who you can bounce those kinds of questions off. Whereas with Google, it costs a little bit of money to set up uh, an AdWords webs uh, an AdWords uh, campaign, um, and you're just relying on 
random people on the internet to uh, answer your questionnaires. I think that's a good summary, Chris. That if you if you talk if you're talking about products in your area of expertise where you've already got a database of people who might be interested in that, start by talking to by asking them first. And if you're not, like if you're talking about pro- creating products in a completely um, new area where you may not have expertise and you may not even have access to people who do or who are interested in that, then Google's a great place to go because there are people walking by Google all the time, in a manner of speaking. That's right, yeah. So let's, let's talk about the passive research methods, Chris, because I know you've, you've done a little bit of this as well. Um, and you, you mentioned this, in fact, last time. You mentioned on eBay there's a way that you can find out both with past sales and also what's popular. Have you, have you ever used that? I haven't used um, – the, the thing that you're referring to on eBay is called eBay Pulse. And that's uh, what's what people are interested in or what people are watching at the moment. So, for instance, when you sell things on eBay, actually we're selling some items at the moment, what you can see is not only the number of people who have bid on your item, but the number of people who are also watching your item. So you don't have to bid on an item straight away. You can add it to a list of items that you're interested in and you're called a watcher in that case. So when you've got things for sale, you uh, can see how many people are watching those items and are potentially going to bid on them later in the auction. And then eBay aggregates all that information about people watching items to find out what is the set of most watched items uh, in their database. And uh, when Ian Usher's auction was up, if you went to the pulseebay.com.au site, his was the top uh, item in that list. His was the most watched item on ebay.com.au. Right. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting way of finding out what people are interested in, uh, what they're looking at at the moment on, on eBay itself. Uh, and then there's things like what items are being most searched for and uh, what items are being uh, traded and listed the most. That's, uh, sorry, that's three, three different kinds of um, information about what people are interested in, what they're watching, what they're buying, what they're selling. And that actually is it's showing what they're actually interested in now, which is particularly useful, isn't it? Yes, it's very current. That's right. Um, I read a story yesterday, Chris. I, I subscribed to Private Eye magazine from the UK, and I read a story there about one of the newspapers, and I think it was The Telegraph, and I hope I've got that right. Um, what they do is that their, their online version of The Telegraph, they have some people in their IT department who are actually looking for what's popular, what's hot, what's trendy, on the internet. So what are people searching for? And they're looking at like in the last few hours. And then they feed that information onto the journalists and say, can you write articles that, that use these stories, that use these words in the headlines? Um, and it wasn't a very positive article, actually. It was criticizing them for just being, just following what's popular. So if Britney Spears was popular, that would go in there. Uh, if breast implant, <laughs> implants were popular, that would go in there. And the journalists would be encouraged to write a story about Britney Spears breast implants or Britney Spears not getting breast implants <laughs> just right. so that they could get popularity for their pages um, in Google because people were searching for that so they, they would get more hits to their website. Nonetheless, that is powerful. Knowing what people are, what's popular, if you've got some search tool on a website or, or a membership list, knowing what people are searching for is really powerful, isn't it? Yes, it is. There, there used to be a very valuable tool um, at overture.com, which is now closed down. But there is a, a way that you can get some information free uh, using, a we- uh, using a website called wordtracker.com. Now, wordtracker is 
what the professional internet marketers use for finding out what what words people are searching for on the internet. It's a paid service, but they also have a free newsletter where every week they will send you the top 10 or 20 words that are that, that are most popular on um, uh, on searches, and they use they supposedly use a number of search engines. So the word tracker stats are supposed to be quite accurate as to what people actually have been searching for in the last week. Okay, so Google offers a service like that. Well, one of them is more of a retrospective um, offering, which is called Google Google Zeitgeist, and that is the search terms that were popular. Uh, last year, the year before, and that sort of thing. So they compile those those statistics on a yearly basis, on an annual basis. But they've also set up a, a more recent offering, which is Google Trends, and there you can uh, go and enter search terms that you might be interested in and see uh, their popularity over time, how many people are searching for particular keywords over time, and then you can break that down uh, by region or by language and those sorts of things. Yes, and that's almost brand new. So we're giving we're giving that to you as almost breaking news. That's right. And <laughs> um, in fact, Google does have another keyword research tool as well, which is a little bit difficult. That the web address is a little bit difficult, but I'll we'll put it in the show notes for this podcast, where you can actually search for certain keywords. So you can type in keywords, and you can find out how popular they are and what people are bidding for them. So it gives you an idea of what not only the popularity but also. Um, what people are paying for them on Google and what you'd be expected to pay if you wanted to be somewhere near the top. Um, And something else that Google offer is, um, so often uh, if you have the Google toolbar, for instance, and you start typing in a set of keywords to search for, then Google will start suggesting the search term that you might be going to type in so that a bit like predictive text on a a mobile phone, you can just uh, select from the list of suggestions it's made rather than typing in the full search term that you might want to be searching for. So if you type uh, BRIT, it might suggest that you're going to be searching for Britney Spears rather than Britain or something like that. And uh, then it probably suggests Britain as well. You can select the search term that uh, Google has suggested rather than typing in the rest of it. And that, of course, is based upon these trends in keyword searches that uh, Google's able to determine by all the searches people have submitted. Interesting, because I have, I have seen that, but I've not thought about applying it that way. So that's a smart way to do that. Yeah. Okay, so in the, as, we, as we finish up, Chris, I think it's worth sharing the, the stories of the e-books that you and I have published. And another one that I've published is still ticking over making the occasional sales. And the one that you've published, I think, is doing the same, isn't it? That's right, yeah, just the occasional sale these days. Um, when we first did this, we, we went through the process of doing the market research that we talked about earlier, where we uh, ran an AdWords campaign. Uh, the landing page had a questionnaire asking uh, the uh, the user what their most burning question was about the topic. In my case, it was Siamese cats. And then from that list of questions, we uh, used Elance to get a ghostwriter to put together, do the research and put together an e-book that answered those questions. Uh, and from there, we were able to create um, a website with uh, a sales letter that used those questions and some of the answers to uh to create interest and generate a sale, um, and I think we use ClickBank. We, we do use ClickBank uh, in order to uh, to handle the the payment for the payment for and downloading of the ebook. 
And that was a really good example, Chris, of where you created a product about a topic that wasn't something that you were necessarily passionate about, Siamese cats. It I was am just now, something. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but initially it was something that you just found there was a market for it, and so it was worth pursuing. That's right. And yes, I did. And I forgot to mention that one of the other uh, initiatives that we undertook was that we bought some Google advertising to also drive traffic uh, to those those websites that we set up initially, but that's not something that uh, we're doing now because the, the AdWords landscape has changed and become a bit more expensive. It has. And I, in fact, I've stopped the Google advertising for my ebook as well, which is actually an ebook that my mother wrote about Sri Lankan cooking because mm. she's had decades of experience in it. And she put together a, an ebook of recipes. But one of the things we did initially was, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, Chris, was that we did a survey. So we did take out Google advertising and we looked at certain keywords and we found that people were searching for things like Indian cooking. So we took out, we paid for advertising when people searched for that and then took them to a survey page where they asked questions like, what's the difference between that and Indian cooking? Can you make it without burning your taste buds? Can it be vegetarian? Can you make it in a Western kitchen? So we made sure that my mum, even though she had all this experience and she could have written this ebook without knowing those questions, we made sure that she included answers to those questions in the ebook so that people would actually get something that, that would be relevant to them and useful and would answer their questions. And it's still, it's still selling to this day, isn't it? it? It is still selling. And I think most of the sales are coming through ClickBank affiliates because ClickBank has a system where anybody can become an affiliate for any other product on ClickBank. And so other people are advertising their ebook and they're selling it and they get a little bit of a commission. That's right. That's one of the other advantages about ClickBank, isn't it? The fact that it's got this ability to use affiliate marketing. Yes, absolutely. And I think that those, those two ebooks, Chris, uh, they really exemplify the, the two episodes that we've covered on this topic about there's a market for everything. That the, the, the Sri Lankan cooking one is one where there's an expert, my mother, who had a product and used a little bit of market research to, to fine tune, to refine their product and to decide that it was worth creating in the first place. But she had the product idea in mind. Whereas the I am Siamese, ebook that you wrote was where you had no product in mind but you did some market research first to find out that there was a product so you were really your expertise was in the internet marketing whereas my mother's expertise was in the product knowledge well i think that's that's a good uh, a good way of closing isn't it the idea that um really you must do that market research not overestimate the market um Go and do a bit of research like the, the type we've suggested today and find out really does a market exist for the product that you have. That's right. And there are no guarantees that you could put the product out there and you could find that despite all the research that you did, for whatever reason, people don't buy it. Uh, but equally, you might put it out there and be surprised by the number of sales that you get. So what we've covered in these two podcasts are just guidelines and rules of thumb that, that kind of increase your chance of success. So, thanks, Chris. Uh, come to the end of another very interesting conversation. Uh, we'll have a new topic in a couple of weeks' time and hope to have you back again. Thanks, Gihan. Talk to you then. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A.com. Subscribe to the podcast listen to all our past issues or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.